Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. It's the 8th of May, 1978, in Paris, France. The high-security prison, La Santé, squats darkly in the heavy mist that shrouds the Rue de la Santé. Santé, the French word for health, couldn't be a worse name for the prison. There's nothing healthy about La Santé. Home to criminals of the dangerous kind. Conditions are harsh and violence rules. It's a hell on earth, prone to riots, murder, assault, and deprivation. The kind of place even the most hardened criminal would love to get away from. But so far, no one has ever escaped the confines of this maximum security prison. Today, Jacques Marine plans to change that. He has no intention of serving another day of the 20-year sentence that he's gotten for murder, kidnapping, and armed robbery. The five years he's already wasted in here have been far too long. Known as France's public enemy number one, Marine is a thief, a kidnapper, a killer, and a serial escape artist. If he wasn't already locked up in France, he'd also be wanted by the forces of Canada Spain and Switzerland. Right now, this charming, notoriously violent, dark-haired Frenchman is following a guard through the corridor on his way to meet with his lawyer. His heart is beating uncharacteristically fast. Not because of the meeting, but because he's about to prove his worth again. He'd been working on this plan a long time. Everything has to go just right. Before the guard leaves them to their meeting, Marine asks him to get a folder he's accidentally left with the inmate in the cell next to his. Guard hesitates, but Marine is nothing if not persuasive. He needs the folder for this meeting, he says. Reluctantly, the guard agrees. And so it starts. The lawyer lays her briefcase on the table between them. Clicking both locks open, she raises the lid, looking at him cautiously. If this gets out, she'll be disbarred, she reminds him. He reassures her he will never betray her trust. As she turns the open case to face him, he beams. With a serpent smile, he lifts two guns, one in each hand holding them gently, as though he's just been reunited with an old lover. Also in the case is a length of climbing rope and a grappling hook, everything he needs for the escape. She's done well. At the same time, down in the cells, Marine's accomplice, another serial prison escapee called Francois Bess, hears the guard approaching his cell door. He smiles. That's his cue. 
the guard steps into his cell, asking for the folder. Handing it over, Bess deliberately fumbles, dropping the contents. As he bends down to collect the scattered papers, Bess pulls a canister of tear gas from his sock, smuggled in by another associate of Mayreen's. He sprays the gas in the guard's face and kicks him hard in the groin, pulling him into the cell. Acting fast, he steals the man's keys and slams the door, locking him in. Turning the corner on his way to find Mayreen, Bess meets two more guards. They run towards him, shouting. There's nowhere to hide. But before they can catch Bess, Mayreen rounds the corner. Two guns held straight out in front of him, yelling at the guards to back off. A shot fired in the air convinces them he means business. In moments, the two wardens are stripped of their uniforms and the escapees have their new disguises. On Mayreen's orders, Bess releases another prisoner from his cell and bundles the now derobed wardens inside. Mayreen tells the prisoner that he will be their cover, playing the convict, while Bess and himself play the guards. In return, they'll help him escape. It's too good an offer to refuse. Using the stolen keys, the trio let themselves into the main prison courtyard. There's just one guard on duty here. A building contractor is also in the open space, working at the top of a tall ladder. Turns out, that's a stroke of luck they hadn't been banking on. The lone guard turns to look at the two men and instantly realizes they are not his colleagues. There's no mistaking an imposing figure like Mayreen's. Before he can raise the alarm, though, Mayreen disarms him, using him as a hostage to reach the perimeter wall unbaited. On the way, Bess forces the builder off his ladder, which they then take from him. New guards pour into the courtyard, shouting, but Mayreen holds him off with a barrage of shots while Bess climbs to the top of the wall and sets up the grappling hook, ready to descend to the street outside. Mayreen throws a gun to the third convict, yelling at him to provide cover for his climb. By the time he reaches the top, Bess is already down the other side and dropping onto the street below. Mayreen takes a final triumphant look at the prison that's held him for five years, shouts to the third man to hurry up, and begins his own descent of the rope. Police whistles shriek as two officers sprint up the road toward the escapees, pistols raised and firing shots. Before Mayreen even hits the pavement, Bess has hijacked a passing car, ripping the terrified driver from his seat at gunpoint. Mayreen dives into the passenger seat, shouting at the man dangling on the rope to be quick. Panicking as police bullets ricochet off the stone wall around him, the man jumps. But the drop is too far. His leg breaks with an audible snap. Bess rolls the car closer. Mayreen shouts at him to get in. Firing over his shoulder at the advancing cops, the injured man hops toward the open door. A straight bullet pings into the bodywork of the car. The next one hits him square in the back. 
He falls forward, dead. There's no more time to wait. Pedal to the floor. The stolen car squeals out of harm's way, whisking Bess and Mayreen to freedom. This marks the first ever successful escape from La Sante and secures Marine's status among the public and press alike as a legend. But that's not a label Marine's nemesis, Detective Maurice Bouvier, is going to be intimidated by. In fact, as the cop who put him in La Sante in the first place, Bouvier will waste no time trying to put him back there. As head of Paris's anti-gang unit, the name Mayreen is well known to his formidable crime-fighting hero. In fact, when Bouvier arrested him five years ago, back in 1973, Mayreen had made him a solemn promise. The next time we meet, the one who shoots first will win. Sure enough, the next time Mayreen and Bouvier do meet, the gangster's fateful prophecy will come true. My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're following the detective Maurice Bouvier as he hunts down France's public enemy number one. Paris in the 1970s is a wild place, gripped by its own political and social struggles. Bouvier can't afford to have this notoriously violent criminal running around the city, too. But the stakes are high on this manhunt. When the two men last met, the gangster vowed he would come out shooting. All Detective Bouvier can hope is that he gets his own shot in first. From Noiser, this is the story of public enemy number one. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. As an eminent detective in the Paris police force, Maurice Bouvier is not only well-respected, but has built a reputation as a fiercely intelligent, tenacious, and determined crime fighter. He's been in charge of the anti-gang unit for long enough to have brought down some of France's worst offenders. He's perhaps best known for catching the men who tried to assassinate President de Gaulle back in 1962. There's not many that can outsmart him, but the gangster, Jacques Marine, has been an almost constant thorn in his side since the 1970s. Now, just because Marine's public reputation paints him as some kind of French Robin Hood, don't be fooled into thinking that Detective Bouvier is therefore the hapless sheriff of Nottingham. On the contrary, Detective Bouvier is frequently referred to as the real-life Inspector Maygray, the broad-shouldered, gruff, pipe-smoking fictional detective in 75 novels created by George Simenon. Now, Detective Bouvier is equally as broad-shouldered and gruff, and he also smokes a pipe. Unlike Maygray, however, Bouvier doesn't have a script to follow, and in many of his cases, there isn't always a happy ending.
as soon as the news comes out that Mayreen has escaped from the inescapable prison, Bouvier and his team swing into action. It was Bouvier who put him in La Sante in the first place, and the past five years, with Mayreen safely under lock and key, have been blissfully quiet. Helicopters are scrambled immediately, scouring the area surrounding the prison, searching for the stolen car and its occupants. 50 officers, accompanied by teams of sniffer dogs, have all been drawn into a manhunt covering all quarters of the French capital. But there's no sign of the escapees. Bouvier realizes they'll need to settle in for a much longer pursuit. Within days, Every known accomplice, friend, or former lover of both convicts is put under surveillance. So too are numerous brothels across the city. After five years inside, Detective Bouvier presumes that both men will seek out the company of women soon enough. He also knows they will probably need money, which means Marine will want to pull a heist quickly too. They pepper the newspapers, with descriptions of the two men, appealing for any information as to their whereabouts. Television news broadcasts feature warnings not to approach these dangerous convicts, especially public enemy number one, Jacques Mayreen. No one comes forward with any help to find the fugitives. Even tried and tested police informants are no use. They all know of Marine, of course, but he spends little time mixing with common criminals. He's always above all that. As the weeks march on with no hint of where he's hiding, Detective Bouvier becomes increasingly frustrated. Most people might assume Mayreen would lay low for a while, but Bouvier knows him too well. Mayreen lives for the thrill. It won't be long before he pops up again. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Okay, now you may be feeling like Jacques Mayreen's reputation is being a little overblown here. I mean, what does a guy even do to earn the handle public enemy number one? To understand him, we should look at some of the events which shaped his life. Jacques Mayreen was born on December 28, 1936, the second child in a fairly ordinary working-class family. Aside from witnessing the horrors of the German invasion of France during World War II, his childhood wasn't especially traumatic. By the time Irene hit 20, though, France was caught in a brutal struggle of its own. War had broken out in the French colony, 
Algeria, in 1954. It was a dirty fight between the French government and the Algerian National Liberation Front, who wanted independence from their French colonizers. Conscripted to serve in 1956, Marine arrived in Algeria as a commando undertaking anti-guerrilla duties, mostly the torture and execution of members of the Liberation Front. His experiences in that conflict shaped the violent criminal he would go on to become. After he was demobbed in 1959, civilian life held none of the adventure, none of the adrenaline, and none of the brutality that had been his meat and potatoes for the last three years. The search for excitement saw him reunited with an old friend who had some off-the-books work that he thought Jacques would be perfect for. He had no idea how right he was. The life of crime he introduced Mayreen to fitted like a glove. During this time, Mayreen learned to transform his appearance too. The simplest of changes worked best. A mustache here, some spectacles there, small, but very effective changes allowed him to play any character he chose. As he ramped up his own criminal pursuits, he perfected his chameleon-like ability to hide in plain sight. And that skill carried him through numerous bank heists, casino robberies, and thefts from private businessmen. By the time of his incarceration in Lasante, he actually had around 20 bank robberies attributed to him. And they're all pretty bold ones. His most reckless signature move is to rob two banks simultaneously. He'll attack a bank on one side of the road, running out with the loot. Then, while police are scrambling to the first bank, he'll cross the road and rob one on the other side, right under their noses. Double the jeopardy, double the money, and most importantly, double the thrill. Okay, now, Mayrine has always painted himself as a revolutionary hero, a one-man rebellion against the corrupt bourgeois state. He defends his thefts, saying he only steals from bigger robbers, banks, corporations, and casinos. He genuinely thinks he's doing France a favor by attacking the state. It's this unparalleled arrogance that has riled Detective Bouvier ever since he first met Mayrine back in 1970. It's one thing getting away with all these audacious heists, but Bouvier has seen a far darker side to Jacques Mayrine, a side fed by his certainty that he's someone to be admired and feared in equal measure. A sadistic darkness within him that's seen him execute is more heinous crimes, murder, assault, execution, and kidnap. Marine's a very bad man, and Detective Bouvier has been trying, with varying degrees of success, to bring him to justice for nearly a decade. The trouble is, even the most inescapable prison doesn't seem to be able to hold him for long. And with every escape, Marine's fame and confidence grows and Detective Bouvier finds himself back in square one. Yeah, Mayrine may consider himself a hero, but as far as Detective Bouvier is concerned, 
he's a ruthless, self-obsessed criminal. He now has to rely on Mayreen's arrogance to draw him out into the open again. Sure enough, on the 26th of May, 1978, just over two weeks after their escape, Mayreen and Bess pull off a heist in a casino in the small Normandy seaside resort of Deauville. Posing as fraud investigators, they tell the casino manager they want to inspect his vault for counterfeit checks. Smelling a rat, the manager asks for a warrant. They provide one of their own making in the shape of a gun pointed right in their face. As they flee the building, though, they find themselves surrounded by police. They're gonna have to shoot their way out. More than 50 shots are fired in an ensuing gunfight. Despite the police giving it their all, Mayreen and Bess escape with only minor injuries. Ditching the car in a forest, they make their way on foot to a nearby farm. There, they hold the farmer, his wife, and their two children hostage while they plan their onward journey. Meanwhile, the full might of the army is drafted in to sweep the area. The man can't have gotten too far, surely. As heavy rain shrouds the deepening night, soldiers are posted to block all routes out of the area. If Mayreen tries to leave, they're ready for him. As the night progresses, over 300 guardsmen comb the forest area where they discover the abandoned car, but find no sign of the thieves. Roadblocks are set up. Every farm track and back road will be monitored. Mayreen will not evade them, not this time. But as dawn breaks, the officers manning the roadblocks are beginning to lose heart. Most of the drivers are angry to be stopped, and no one has seen the crooks. Despite searching every trunk and back seat, every truck and van, there's been no sign of the elusive Mayreen or his accomplice. At one checkpoint, a Peugeot 504 saloon car is waved to a halt in the queue. At the wheel, looking nervous, a local farmer, Daniel, winds his window down. The officer leans in. Have you seen these men? Anything strange on the road? Daniel shakes his head, no. They ask his wife in the passenger seat. She repeats the answer, no, nothing. The two children in the back seat, a boy and a girl, agree with their parents, nothing. Before any more can be asked, an altercation breaks out with the driver of a van behind him. He's refusing to open the back. Chase Mayreen, he shouts, leave us alone. Farmer Daniel looks on anxiously in his rearview mirror as they pull the man from the vehicle, still protesting his innocence. The cop dealing with Daniel waves him on, eager to help his colleagues with the troublesome band driver. With a sigh of relief, Daniel pulls away, trying not to focus on the armed officers with guns held ready for any surprises. God only knows what would have happened if they'd opened his trunk. It's only once they're several miles outside of the roadblock perimeter that Daniel pulls the car over. Killing the engine 
the metal ticks and the awkward silence. Neither his wife nor his children say a word. Daniel climbs out and opens the trunk, reassuring the two fugitives hiding inside that they've not been followed. He watches them clamor out of the car. He's just helped France's public enemy number one to escape the police blockade. And as a reward, he and his family get to live. For good measure, Mayreen gives him a bundle of cash from their casino hall, giving him a final warning to keep his mouth closed. Mayreen and Bess head into the safety of the woods. Despite hundreds of soldiers searching, despite sniffer dogs and helicopters, despite every resource being thrown at the hunt for Mayreen, they find nothing. It's been two days since the casino heist and three weeks since the escape. Bouvier and his team already fear the worst. They've lost him. Now, knowing how fast Mayreen moves, if they haven't caught him, leaving the area in the first 48 hours, He'll already be long gone. Once again, a master of disguise has outwitted them. The question now is, where will he go next? The only certainty, yet again, is that Jacques Mayreen will not disappear for long. On August 4th, 1978, three months after the escape, Detective Bouvier has proved right. A copy of the popular magazine Paris Match is thrown on his desk with Mayreen's face on the cover. They've got an exclusive scoop with public enemy number one. At some point following the casino job, Mayreen came back to Paris and, shockingly, decided to sit down for an interview. In it, he talks about revolution, about blowing up maximum security prisons that he feels are inhumane. Only now, reading Mayreen's justification in his own words, does Detective Bouvier realize quite how far the man's delusions have grown. It's as though his continued avoidance of justice seems to have given him a warped sense of his own power. He describes himself in flowery prose as an activist, a revolutionary, even a hero. The hyperbole is off the charts. The only saving grace is that, in the interview, Mayreen acknowledges his respect for Detective Bouvier. But he also reiterates the warning he made when Bouvier last arrested him. He won't be taken alive, and when they come for him, he'll go down shooting. The battle lines have been drawn for Mayreen's very own Alamo. At this point in their long game of cat and mouse, it's a challenge Bouvier is willing to take. If there has to be a last man standing, Detective Bouvier is determined it'll be him. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. 
the debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. While the Paris Match interview causes ripples, reinvigorating the public and media interest in Mayrine, the trail goes cold again. The interview was recorded at least a month before its publication. And now, Mayrine has gone uncharacteristically quiet. But the fact that he's still at large, in Paris, is making a mockery of Bouvier and his team. Pressure's mounting from above to silence this violent gangster once and for all. Right now, though, it feels like Mayrine is holding all the cards. And he's playing the authorities for fools. Frustratingly, all Bouvier can do is wait for his next exploit and hope that this will be the one that trips him up. So, after a number of smaller robberies and assaults, all of which were attributed to Mayrine but never confirmed, news reaches Detective Bouvier of a kidnapping, which was certainly Mayrine's doing. 82-year-old multimillionaire real estate mogul Henri Lelievre is taken from his home in June 1979 by two men posing as police officers. Having arrived at his house and flashed their badges, these officials inform the elderly businessman that he must accompany them to the station to answer complaints about his rental properties. Naturally, he agreed. The only problem was they weren't policemen. They were kidnappers. The next time Lely Evru's son hears from the men, it's to get a ransom demand. Six million francs for the old man's safe return. It's a huge amount of money. Over 3,000 times the average salary for the detective chasing Mayrine. But it's a drop in the ocean compared to the wealth Lily Evru has. His son quickly agrees to the deal. But he makes the mistake of turning up to the first drop with a police escort. Watching from a high vantage point in the hills, Mayrine is livid. He shoots at the cops with a long-range rifle. But when reinforcements turn up, he's forced to return to the safe house empty-handed. But that's the last chance police have to intercept the deal. The next time the son is given a drop location, he's also warned that they'll kill his father and him if he comes with company. Luckily, he listens. The exchange is made, and yet again, Mayrine disappears into thin air. This time, six million francs richer. As the year progresses, Mayrine continues clowning for the press, taking pleasure in taunting the police. The articles mostly paint him favorably. His character as a lovable rogue and a gentleman thief is fast becoming part of French folklore. In each piece, he reiterates his threat that he's going to dismantle the bourgeois state 
and that he'll shoot it out with anyone who tries to stop him. Quote, nobody kills me until I say so, he proclaims with his trademark arrogance. But not all journalists are so smitten. A former cop turned recorder, Jacques Tellier, pushes an article in the far-right newspaper Minute, which is hugely disparaging. In it, he claims Mayreen has no loyalty and always betrays his friends and associates. Well, that's more than Mayreen's pride can take. He offers the journalist a scoop, a face-to-face meeting to get to know the real Mayreen. It's hard to understand what Talier could be thinking when he agrees to the clandestine meeting. Perhaps it's the lure of the cash a scoop like this would generate. Whatever convinces him to meet with Mayreen, it's a huge mistake. On the 10th of September, 1979, Mayreen and an accomplice, Charlie Bauer, lead the journalist to a remote location, deep inside a cave. Instead of giving him an interview, Mayreen treats him to some of the torture he learned in Algeria. Finally, after Bauer tells him to stop the vicious beating, he shoots the man three times, once in the arm to stop him riding trash, once in the face to stop him talking trash, and once more in the leg for good measure. The only mistake Mayreen makes is to presume the reporter is dead when they leave him in the cave. Against the odds, Talier survives the attack, and the information he's got finally marks the beginning of Mayreen's downfall. Detective Bouvier, under huge pressure to remove Mayreen from the streets altogether, pushes the stricken journalist for every detail. And now, he gets two major breakthroughs in his hunt. It turns out that Mayreen's associate in the attack is also known to the police. Charlie Bauer is an old friend of Mayreen's from one of his stints in a maximum security prison. He's immediately placed under close surveillance. The second useful detail that Talier provides is the registration of the car that Mayreen used to abduct him. That information allows Detective Bouvier to trace the owner of the vehicle, a woman called Sylvia Jean Jaco. And it doesn't take Bouvier long to learn that Sylvia is Mayreen's lover. Examining the car's details, they find that Sylvia has several parking tickets, linking her to a specific area of Paris. Bouvier can finally allow himself a frizzle of excitement. The net is closing. A round-the-clock operation to watch the area where Sylvia's car was ticketed begins. And it's not long before Charlie Bauer is seen entering one of the tenement buildings they're watching. Problem is, there are a lot of apartments in that building, and going in without knowing if Mayreen is even inside would tip him off too soon. For now, they must sit tight and watch. This is Bouvier's best chance in a year and a half to catch the gangster. He's throwing everything at it. Over 80 detectives, including armed response teams, are involved in the stakeout, working shifts to ensure Mayreen doesn't escape again. It's important to say here, too, 
that Mayreen's reputation with the press has taken something of a nosedive. Whatever his colleagues think of Talier as a journalist, Mayreen's attack on him is seen as an assault on one of their own. As Mayreen's star starts to fade and supports for his antics wanes, the coverage becomes increasingly negative. He no longer has the press's devotion. To an ego like Mayreen's, it must be unbearable. Feeling the tide turn against him, maybe he's not so unstoppable after all. On the 31st of October, Lady Luck smiles on Detective Bouvier's surveillance team. One of the officers on stakeout had previously seen Mayreen in person during one of his many court hearings. The master of disguise may have changed his facial appearance, but his powerful physique is instantly recognizable to the cop, and he's looking at him right now. This is their chance. The covert officer shadow Mayreen and his girlfriend, Sylvia, all the way home. With the location confirmed, the building is put under the tightest surveillance possible. From now on, no one comes in or out without being monitored. Two days later, on the 2nd of November, 1979, Bouvier's patience is about to be rewarded. The eminent detective has chased, hunted, and stalked Mayreen on and off for nearly a decade. It's been a hell of a dance, but now it must come to an end. With dozens of armed officers hiding in cars, vans, trucks, and buildings, Bouvier is absolutely certain that Mayreen cannot leave the property without him knowing. Right now, Bouvier is in his car on the road opposite Mayreen's apartment block, waiting patiently. Because today is the day, he's had a tip-off that Mayreen is planning to leave the city for a weekend in the country, and he's not about to let that happen. The sting is set, and as soon as Mayreen leaves home, the chase will be on. The radio in Bouvier's hand crackles. One of his officers has just seen the door to Mayreen's tenement block open. Out steps Sylvia, her miniature poodle clutched under her arm. She steps out onto the pavement, looking both ways. Cautiously, she heads off towards the corner. Every step is watched by the officer hiding in a small tarp-covered truck. She's moving now, looking all around her. He reports. Sylvia checks back nervously, as though she's waiting for someone. And then the officers spot him. Disguised he may be, but it's clearly Mayreen. He, too, steps out of the house and sets off slowly, following Sylvia. Radios crackle as the hidden officers trail their progress along the road. He's heading towards you, sir. At the corner now. The policeman, hidden in the small, tarpaulin-covered truck, holds his breath. Mayreen is right there, on the other side of the thin fabric layer. What if he recognizes it as an undercover vehicle? The officer inside quickly silences his radio. He can't afford for this violent criminal to overhear any chatter. With a quivering hand, 
The officer raises his weapon, pointing it at the place beyond the tarpaulin, where Mayreen is currently standing. He's ready to strike if Mayreen rips the cover back. But departing footsteps tell him the danger is past. By the time the cop plucks up the courage to glance out of the window, again, there's no sign of either Mayreen or Sylvia. They've completely disappeared. He turns his radio back on, admitting to Bouvier that he's lost the sight of the target. Bouvier is livid. What does he mean they've disappeared? Before the shamed officer can reply, a rolling garage door in the building behind the truck clicks into action, grating as it slides up its runners. From the subterranean garage, a gold BMW emerges, nosing out onto the street. Behind the wheel is Mayreen. Boom, the radio jumps to life. Mayreen's on the move. Protective Bouvier starts his own engine, ready to follow once the BMW passes. As it happens, the car reaches the end of the road and then begins reversing at speed all the way back to the entrance of the house where Mayreen and Sylvia have been living. The BMW stops. Police are confused. What is Mayreen up to? Does he know they're watching him? Should they strike now? It's not how Bouvier planned it. With Mayreen's threat of a shootout hanging over him, he orders his men to wait and watch. He wants to do this with as little risk to their lives as possible. Sylvia hops from the car and heads inside. Mayreen kills the engine and steps out, sauntering over to lean on a battered old minivan while he waits for her. Inside that minivan, another undercover policeman is struggling to keep it together. If Mayreen turns around and peers through the grimy window, he'll see a cop inside clutching a pistol, hoping he doesn't get spotted and blow the whole operation. Finally, Sylvia steps back out with a suitcase. As Mayreen resumes his position at the wheel, she slips into the BMW, tucks her poodle onto her lap, fastens her seatbelt. There's nothing he can do. Now the officer in the minivan finally lets out the breath he's been holding, turning his radio back on. He admits that he nearly passed out then. He was leaning on my windows, he reports. They're coming your way now. Bouvier sits up straight. It's on. Here comes the BMW in his rear view. As it passes, another blue truck, also covered in a loose tarpaulin, falls in behind Mayreen. Bouvier guns the accelerator and pulls out behind the truck. His heart's pounding. On the radio, Bouvier issues rapid-fire instructions, guiding his team to intercept the fugitive's vehicle. They need to stop him before he gets to the ring road. Responses fly thick and fast. They're all over his every move. And the blue truck is about to slip into position. Overtaking the BMW, the old truck eases into place in front of it waiting to turn left. The light's red. Mayreen's waiting patiently behind them in the queue. Further back in the traffic, Bouvier is stuck behind a line of cars. Horns blare in frustration. The radio crackles again. The light's green. Go, go, go! But Bouvier is still stuck. The cars around him aren't budging. Swearing, he jumps out of his car and sprints through the traffic towards the junction. 
he is absolutely not going to miss this moment. Up ahead, the blue truck deliberately stalls at the lights as Mayreen sounds his own horn yelling at them to get a move on. The tarpaulin covering the back of the truck flies upwards and four police marksmen level four semi-automatics at Mayreen's windscreen. An awful moment passes where the realization dawns on the gangster. His time is up. His eyes widen as the first shots begin to fly. Sylvia's screams are drowned by rapid gunfire, tearing into her lover's body. On the street, Bouvier is running as fast as his feet can carry him. The first blast of gunfire echoes away. Silence falls, even in the Parisian rush hour traffic, just for a moment. And then, all hell breaks loose. Bouvier arrives at the scene, just as a final headshot is made. The coup de grace. Mayreen is dead. As his officers pull an injured and screaming Sylvia from the car, Bouvier leans in to check Mayreen. No sign of life. It's finally over. The legend has fallen, and he was right. They didn't take him alive. Jacques Mayreen certainly earned the title public enemy number one. He terrified, terrorized, and tortured to his heart's content. But somehow, with a natural Gallic flair, he managed to win the hearts of the public. There was something wild and exciting about him, a hint of the old gangsters of fiction. They should have known from an early age that a normal life of rules, alarm clocks, and grinding debt would not be for him. Marine's death came as a welcome piece of good news for the French government. They'd been facing a tide of political scandals and accusations of incompetence. That the police had finally neutralized an enemy of the state was to be applauded, shouted from the rooftops even. Within half an hour of Marine's death, Interior Minister Christian Bonnet was giving a personal report to the president. Don't worry, though. He made sure to pass on the president's thanks to the cops who actually brought down France's public enemy number one. Predicting his own imminent death, Mayreen said in a posthumous message to Sylvia, death means nothing to someone who knew how to live. Besides, when I'm dead, I'm guilty of nothing I have paid. In many ways, perhaps he was right. To some, he was a gangster, to some, a hero, to Detective Bouvier, a criminal. But you can't deny he was most definitely a legend. Perhaps, though, the same title should be bestowed on the formidable detective who stopped him in his tracks. To pursue a villain for that long with so many setbacks, well, that changes a man, even one as bullish and determined as Maurice Bouvier. And perhaps, with Mayreen's light extinguished, this particular detective may finally get some sleep. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep, we travel back in time to Victorian Manchester for a baffling mystery that could have been penned by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle himself. 
1889, a wealthy businessman is found dead in a handsome cab. With no signs of injury or attack, his death seems to be down to natural causes. But who was the mysterious young companion seen running from the cab? And what happened to the dead man's gold watch? Tasked with answering these questions is one of the greatest detectives of his generation. Chief Inspector Jerome Caminata, the man some call Manchester's Sherlock Holmes. But will the case prove too challenging, even for him? Find out in the next episode of Detectives Don't Sleep. first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.